everybody, and welcome into the New England Ski Journal Base Camp Podcast, your central information for New England skiing and riding, sponsored by Country Ski and Sport, the Boston area's oldest family-run ski shop. I am your host, Eric Wilbur. I am joined by Mike Speechin, right off here to my left. Mike, how are you? Eric, I'm doing incredible. You know what? I don't know. The last podcast we had was riveting. It was riveting. It was fun to sit down and and talk. You had this idea to like, let's, let's start the fall by taking a look at some of our favorite ski movies. And I was was intrigued and fascinated, hoping we can get the guests on. And then you landed the creator of one of my favorite movies of all time and hot dog. And I was hoping that podcast would be something that I really appreciated it. And boy, did I, I, I really, I wished I could have kept talking and talking um, to Mike Marvin and, and Lynn, Lynn Wyland. Just constant questions I had about creating this movie. And it really got me into just excited about um, what our next podcast is going to be, because not only are we going from my favorite ski movie of all time from Hollywood we're now going to go take a look at my favorite ski movie of all time. That's actually skiing and not, you know, scripted. Um, and I'm really excited to, to talk to these two about what went into creating that masterpiece. Well, what we're, where we're going right now is an iconic movie that created the, the extreme skiing of the world. I, I shouldn't say the world of the U.S. because Europe mm-hmm. is different. But the skiers, Schmidt, Hatra, Plake, when when you see them ski, they are just unbelievable. And they're not skiing on 110-under-foot skis. They're skiing on 215 mm-hmm. rippers. Yep, absolutely. And if in case you didn't know, we're talking about Blizzard of Oz, the iconic – Movie from Greg Stump. And next up on the podcast, we're going to have Stump along with Mike Hatchup from that movie. If you're, if you have any inkling of appreciation for ski films in the 80s, you obviously know the names Greg Stump and Mike Hatchup. Stump grew up in Gorham, Maine, skied at Pleasant Mountain. He was U.S. National Junior Freestyle Champion in 1978. In 1979, he won the North American Freestyle Championships. Spent two years in the professional freestyle circuit. He landed a role in filmmaker Dick Barrymore's last film in 1979. Stump fell in love with the lifestyle and studied everything Barrymore did. And in 1998, or 1988, I'm sorry, in 1988, he released The Blizzard of Oz. It was his fifth movie in five years. That launched the careers of Scott Schmidt, Mike Hatchup, and Glenn Plake to another level. Uh, also, Mike Hatchup, U.S. Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame Class of 2021, inducted this past spring in Big Sky. Uh, being part of a mogul bashing group that dubbed itself the Goon Squad led him to stump. Bruce Benedict had shot stills of Mike and Steamboat and begged me to watch him ski, Stump said. I fell in love with Mike skiing, especially how it translated to film. So, we're going to have Greg Stump. Mike Hatchup on the podcast. What are you most excited to ask him about? What do you want to talk to him about? You know what, Eric? This film, this film is probably the most influential to me. Whoa. We are we are all contemporaries age-wise, but these guys set a different level of skiing. And I have been on the hill with each one of them at different times. And I'll tell you, there's nothing like what these guys have accomplished and done, and I'm just looking forward to it. Okay, we are going to have those two up 
right after this word. All right, welcome back into the Basecamp podcast. If you have any recollection or inkling about what ski movies meant in the 80s and 90s, then you don't need to be introduced to the two gentlemen that we have. Coming up next, they are Greg Stump, who was the man behind Blizzard of Oz, which is, I think, generally regarded as the greatest ski film of all time. And Mike Catrup, who skied in that film, one of the the stars. And this is a film that throttled him to ski stardom and and recognizable face and throttled him throttled him exactly that's right greg welcome to the, welcome to the show to both of you is throttled is that like an adjective like is like to throttle to thrust in the general direction of something positive or negative but in this case positive now we want to welcome you both. This is an extreme pleasure. One of my favorite movies of all time. Greg, how did the idea of the movie come about? Well, that's a big question. Let's see. How did the idea come about? Well, I had the name for a couple of years. I, 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 had, I had always had a bunch of names, like whatever, Maltese, Flamingo, Blizzard of Oz. They just had all these stupid names. And so then I, I would try to make a movie to fit the name. But Blizzard was, how did it come about? Um, Mike, I, you probably know better than I. How, how did it come about? I think it was just the evolution of, of uh, a string of movies that you'd done. And, and to me, this was kind of, this was kind of Maltese, Maltese having enough of a following and was a good enough movie that it captured a lot of people's attention. And to me, this was really the next step. And, and it was a huge step because that what you produced here was, I mean, I, I think so much bigger of a movie and and, and so much uh, a story that that was waiting to be told and and so I just I, I don't know I I don't know where the initial movie idea came about. I do remember you saying always that you wanted to make a ski film that was more like the NFL films that you'd see where you where, where they'd interview the, the the players and get in their face and and you got to understand the emotion that was behind some of the plays and what was going on in their heads and that I, I remember you saying that and I don't yeah well that's that's absolutely correct and then the, the, well, a whole bunch of things ch- changed by Blizzard was the fifth movie that I made in five years so a movie a year I was on some kind of crazy tear but with Blizzard a lot of things came together. It was the first time that I had an offline system. So my two three quarter inch decks and I could make not practice edits, but I could make rough edits of the movie and I actually tested them. I played them for my friends in Maine who were all skiers and I just I just kinda of listened to their comments and saw when they were bored, when they were not bored, what 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 glued them. Because I had a whole I had a lot of extra stuff in Blizzard of Oz because I was kind of all over the place as a filmmaker. I didn't, I, I still wanted like goofy shit and funny, funny to me things. Whereas Blizzard really demanded no goofy shit. I mean, that's why I put the 30th anniversary and I took out Wheel of Destruction and Cookie the Swede because I thought that was really distracting. Because Blizzard had, you know, so I, did, I get to do practice at it, I get to test it. 
over and over. Like, and one friend in particular, he's, he's like, Greg, he's, we, I don't want to see these kids in Vail at Vail Ski School, children's ski school. Cut that. I want to see the, the – cut it. I want to see these guys ski in the steeps in Chamonix. That's what I want to see. And that was, that was great advice because it really was about – it was about Chamonix. It was also a lot about us. Because I was very frustrated at that point because we couldn't, we kept getting not kicked out of ski areas in America, but we were not allowed to film because we didn't have insurance. And you couldn't get insurance. You could get it. It was $100,000 from Lloyd's of London. Then we could get an insurance policy. Well, my entire budget was like 60 grand, so that was out. But it was, there's a lot of factors. We were just like, fuck it, let's go to freaking France. Because we'd been to France and we'd seen what was going on over there. And so it really was, Trevor Horn actually told me that he thought the movie was about us Americans coming to save Europe and save the old country. <laughs> save Europe. Yeah, he did. He thought we, he thought that movie was about the Americans once again coming to Europe and saving Europe from itself. And that, that's what he thought. I mean, I never thought that. And that's another funny thing about that movie. As a lot of people, if you ask them what it's about, that's how something completely different but that's also I think when you know you have a hit of, of anything because I think of your favorite song like you probably think the lyrics are one thing and the artist they're completely different from what you think so it's, it's open to personal interpretation and I think Blizzard did that still managed to stay about skiing despite my best efforts <laughs> well Greg you wrote the movie was more about bucking the man in America is is that what you mean by that? Yeah, and we were like, okay, fuck you. We're gonna go to the, go to Europe, and we'll make our hit movie over there. Well, you can watch us from the Today Show, and it it was a hit, and people is still a rite of passage each each year as we enter into ski season to watch it. Well, it was a hit, and it still is a hit. And and, and Greg, you told me a few years ago we went viral before viral existed, and I think that's a great way to put it because. I think Mike came up with that. <laughs> I think, no, you told me that. You told me that in an interview we had. Yeah, a couple I, of years well, ago. Well, Mike probably told me. Okay. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike, very <laughs> much. So, Mike, no, let's ask no you this question. <laughs> Everything that I, I say or utter is just something I've heard before. But what I, but you can go viral in 2023 with nonsense, right? And, and people will forget it in five minutes. You went viral with the product because it was so unique and that people gravitated towards it. And here we are 30X years later still talking about it. What gives this movie – and Mike, I will ask you since you are the genius behind viral being viral. <laughs> what, <laughs> Thank you. What, what besides the skiing and the music obviously is a, a big component. Why is this such a, an important film all these decades later? I have to start with, I'm pretty sure I didn't say it was, we went viral before it was viral. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to say I but, said it, okay? It, but, yeah. I, think, uh, I think it was Plank. I think there are a few things that... I I think there are a few things that made this movie special and stand out, and, and I certainly didn't think we were going to be talking about it 30 years later. But A... A was it was the stump storytelling and editing because prior to that most ski movies 
had 20, 30, 40 skiers in there that were, were, were all good skiers, but you didn't know any of them and you didn't get to, you never saw them again. You didn't even know what their names were. And Stump took a few skiers and developed those characters so that you, that you heard them talk, you heard them tell stories, you got a little bit of feel for their personality and who they were. So that, that was part of it. And then I think part of it was just timing that, that this happened to coincide with, with the the advent of VHS because prior to that you went and saw your the ski movie at your local theater and then it went away and you never saw it again and this you could own and watch over and over again and people did and they they knew all the lines from the movies and they wore out their VHSs and I hear people say that all the time so it was really a a combination of 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 Stump's editing and storytelling and and the timing I think it, it's it's that's really true, and I'm I'm glad you brought that up, Mike, because I didn't tour, I didn't I I mean we did we did do tours, we did these college tours, but the the object was not to even try to make money; it was just to expose people to it. But the big the big way that movie got seen is is VHS because it was people were all everybody had a VHS machine, and aside from watching filming themselves making porn, all of a sudden certain films came out and and but really, I mean, the ski movies were a perfect example. Blizzard got passed around. Have you seen this movie? Oh, got to check this tape out. And I mean, that's the story I've heard m- most. You know, you talk to the guys at TGR, Corey Gavitt and Todd Jones, and they're like, oh, you got to see this. This is how I want to ski. This is how I want to live. Now, was another thing. It portrayed a lifestyle. The, it's go west, young, young man, especially for me because being from Maine, the whole scheme of thing was was a way to get out of Maine and to you know, be in the west and ski in the west and just have I, a lot of fun. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that from people saying, "You, this movie was the reason I moved out west and skipped college or." quit my job and moved out West and became a skier, a, a, a dedicated skier to which I usually respond. Warren, Don't blame me for your bad decisions, but uh. <laughs> right. right. Well, and Warren, Warren said the same thing about his films. He said one day this guy came up to him and goes, I hate you. And he goes, you hate me. Or no, the guy came up to him and goes, my father hates you. And then one like, you're, I don't know your father. Why does your father hate me? It was because I, I dropped out of college. I didn't carry on running the family business and I blew everything off and I, I left Ohio and I went to Colorado or somewhere out West. And it was because of that movie. And that's a really cool thing. And Schmidt says that's the same. He's a I can't Scott. He can't. He's, I mean, Jesus, look how famous Scott got from that movie. Glenn, the Today Show, that didn't hurt. A lot of it, a lot of energy. And that was an interesting morning. Let me tell you. <laughs> well, I do want to get there, but I also want to, to start introducing the particulars about how you recruited these skiers. So you started out with Scott Schmidt and Mike Catrup, and you had another person on that crew, Lynn Wyland, and she ended up breaking her back on the first day. Can you describe what happened and, and what you felt you had to do to keep this movie going at that point? Well, that was a tough day because, well, Mike and Lynn had been with me from the very beginning. Mike, in particular, Lynn came in at Maltese Flamingo, but Mike had been, like, you did droids, right? Yeah. No, no. 
right after droids. Time waits for snowman. So you did time waits. You came in into, into time waits. Yeah. Uh, so the very second movie, and I mean, I immediately, you know, filming Mike was. He just had this great, powerful bump style, and I was a bump skier. And I just like something about Mike's skiing was just super powerful, and I don't know, it was kind of perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Glenn, Glenn says you're a one-footed skier because well, you just then you then you, you had knee surgery the year before, right? Yeah, yeah, I had my ACL. Yeah. Yeah. So Lynn breaks um, her back, and Lynn, broke, Lynn broke her back on like the first shot of, and it was an easy. It was a one-turn come-on shot, but it was uh, above this cat track. And I saw her coming at my camera, and I'm thinking, I just thought, well, she's going way too fast. This is fucked. And sure enough, she did the one turn, and then I heard this horrible bump because uh, she land- she almost cleared this cat track that she had forgotten about or something, and then but she didn't clear it, and she just this deadening, horrible thump. And the next thing I know, she's being airlifted and we go to the hospital and I'm in the, I'm in the hallway of the hospital and the doctor comes out in France. I don't speak French. And the doctor's like, she broke her back and I actually fainted. I was, I fainted and I like fell into the wall because it just, it was my worst nightmare. And then that's, and it's, that's ultimately why I quit making ski movies is because I, I wasn't going to see one of my friends be killed or die or, Paralyzed TGR, they've had deaths and sure. paralyzations. I met one of their guys who's been in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. And I just, it was Siberia where I finally just went, that's fuck it, I'm not doing this anymore. Because eventually someone was going to get killed sure. or hurt and it was going to be in front of my lens. And I'm good friends with Steve Winter. And when he talks about filming Shane, McConkey. I mean, he tears up, he, he filmed the guy die. It, oh, yeah front of his lens and he's never going to forget that no it's 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 trauma when you see that happen Mm -hmm. and as we push the envelope even farther because that's what we have done it's it's inevitable unfortunately hey mike i know scott schmidt was really skeptical about the movie or about what was being put out what's your take on it on scott's response to it originally well I, I mean, Scott was a Scott grew up as a racer, and and we were all bump skiers. Everybody else in the movie and and all, all of Stump's movies came from freestyle, so we were all bump skiers. And so there was a lot of bump skiing in the movies, and Schmidt wasn't really into that. And and at the time, there was always kind of a rift between the bump skiers and the racers too. Uh, but and then there was a bunch of wacky stuff in Stump's movies. We did we skied in the desert. We did a bunch of freeze frame animation we hadn't even we hadn't even started with the nudity yet (laughs) (laughs) and and yeah so i think and i didn't know schmidt before then so i i didn't speak to him prior to this but from what i understand he goes yeah it was in pre in subsequent conversations he goes yeah it was just a little bit too whacked out for me it wasn't my style so he was he was pretty reluctant i guess initially and then, mm, well, I mean, what sold him, what he told me was that the only reason he did it is I had a budget and you want to go to Europe for a month. And, and he's like, I like Europe and you got a budget. And he's like, okay, sure. <laughs> Let's try it. He didn't, even, even after we filmed it, he didn't think 
there was close to enough footage to so, do anything. So Lynn is out and enter Glenn Plake. How does this introduction begin? And and how what are your initial thoughts on this guy that you've all of a sudden been saddled with? Well, I knew Glenn. Mm-hmm. I mean, we Mike introduced us all because Glenn's in Maltese. Okay, but you know, Glenn was—I mean, at the to- at that time, he was uh, a drug addict. He was an alcoholic. He was full-on Mohawk punk rocker. I don't he, know that I'd call him an addict. I—I'd I, say he was a user, but maybe not <laughs> okay. an addict. He, he was well. He—he he liked his cocaine and his weed. He and was embracing alcohol. the ski industry of that day and age, for sure. I don't know. I mean, I never even tried coke. I don't know thing about it. Right? I've never even tried it. Nobody believes me either. I tell people to this day, I've <laughs> tried coke. And they're like, yeah, fuck you. And I'm like, okay, I don't care. And I haven't. But Glenn had. And for me, he was, because he was stalking us. He's like, Mike, remember, he would just show up at Snowbird. Like, how the yeah. I kept trying. I kept going. How the fuck does this guy know where we are? Because I'm not telling him. I'm not even communicating with him. But it was Carl Abbey. It was my business partner. He's the one that kept telling Glenn where we were and show up here. And and because Carl knew Glenn was going to be a star. And for me, Glenn was a liability. Just, yeah, a liability. Because I the thing that I was most because I'd been to Europe a lot before going with the film. I, I went to school in England and spent a lot of time in London. So I knew, I knew Europe, but I knew what I did not want. And that was to have, to, for me to have the ugly American. Because Glenn had every possibility of being the ugly American. And as it turned out, he, he, was, he was the opposite. I mean, geez, he, loved his, he was speaking French by the time we even left. And, but I was afraid of him being the ugly American. And I didn't want, I didn't want that. I, I just, I didn't want to, I didn't want the responsibility of a guy that was out of control because at that point I, I was very in control. I managed to get out of control after that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Greg, can you talk about what it was like filming? How did, how did you attach cameras to your, to yourself and what sort of, of, of things did you do as precursors to the GoPro? Well, we were using what were called GAZAP cameras, uh-huh. an acronym for Gun Sight Aiming Point. And they were, they were cameras built by the government in World War II, actually, because they were attached to the wings of uh, bombers. So it was, the, it was because it was pre-video, so it was the way for the military to assess a bomb damage. Huh. GAZAPs, gun sight, gun sight Aiming Point cameras. So that's what those cameras were for. You couldn't see through them. And so we just, before we even used, before we even used the gazaps, we took Bolexes, wind-up Bolexes. And before that, it like another smaller wind-up camera. And we were like duct taping. I mean, I've got a picture of Scott Cameron. He's got a windsurfing harness vest on backwards. And we've duct taped a camera to the front of him. So we were duct taping cameras to windsurf vests initially. Then the Gazaps came out, and, and you could actually rent from this place in Hollywood, Alan Gordon Enterprises. You could rent these helmet helmet uh, cameras that had Gazaps on them. And like the, one, the, the battery weighed as much as the camera. The battery was on one side, and the camera was on the other side, so it was balanced. 
so that we started using those. But I certainly was not the first ski filmmaker to do that. Barrymore did it. He used Gazap's John Jay. They were already using Gazap on the cameras. And that's probably where I heard about that you can rent them from this place in LA. But I was I was way into the point of view thing. And from the very first movies, I was trying to get point of view. And I don't know why, probably because of Barrymore, probably because of uh, Joe Jay. Um, but yeah, I was just fascinated with trying to get that. And we used a you know, wide angle. We used a lot of wide, wide angle, even on our regular cameras. And then there was, that's just, that's just the POV. Uh, but I was also using an Aeroflex SR2, which all, Warren Miller, none of those, nobody used SR2. That was a, that was a commercial grade camera and it was heavy. And that was the difference because I had a back surgery and probably why I had ankle replacement surgery. I mean, at that point I weighed about 145 pounds and I was carrying a 70 pound backpack of gear because you've got the camera, lenses, batteries, and then films. You know, even a 400 foot cake of film, that's, that's like a pound and a half. Just one, you know, not the last, that only last year, like seven minutes. Yeah. <laughs> right? Now, the other thing, we had a changing film. How many times, Mike, were you standing on the hill waiting for me or Bruce to get out of the black bag? You know, okay, you put the camera in a black bag, you open the film up, you put the film back into this can, take the can up, then you put more film in, and the hundred foot loads, those those only lasted three minutes. <laughs> I, I'm I'm pretty sure this is why Lynn broke her back because I don't know if you're changing film, but I remember waiting up there a really long time, long enough that Lynn forgot what was below her when we skied down there. Probably because it, it was maddening for the skiers, and they're yelling at me like, "Hurry up!" And I'm like, "Fuck you guys! You come here and change the film with your hands, no gloves." Below zero, whatever is cold and film brittle, and like this is pig iron, so the iron's freezing. If you stuck your tongue to it, you'd be like dumb and dumber. And but it it was when I was going as fast as I could because I I used to ski in ski movies, so I wanted I didn't want my skiers to wait. But it was just a fact of life at the time, and it's funny now with the digital cameras and HD and piece of cake, right? Comparatively, yeah. Well, yeah. And at the same time, I don't knock the new technology at all. I think it's fabulous, and you know, I wish we had it, but the stuff we were using at the time, that was cutting edge on technology. And I remember people, older filmmakers going, oh, you guys are cheating. You got these new cameras. Yeah. Well, it's, kind of, it's kind of like everything. It was way harder to make a ski movie. You also had to ski on 205 centimeters, 65 wasted skis. I mean, everything was... Everything was more difficult. What, we don't do that anymore? <laughs> Thank <No>. God. <laughs> well, everyone knows the names Greg Stump and Mike Hatrip and Scott Schmidt and all the important faces and names that created this movie. But I think you could argue, Greg, that one of the, the most instrumental, instrumental names behind the movie is Trevor Horn, who had a lot to do with the soundtrack. Can you explain your relationship with Trevor Horn and what that meant to get sort of a different catalog in this film. Well, I mean, that, that that's probably the biggest thing that made Blizzard different was we were able to use, and not so much, I mean, there's no, the Frankie music, that's one track, but it's mostly a band called Act and Propaganda. Hmm. 
And those were, those are bands I heard about from a guy named Barry Levinson in the States. And so, um, I, I, I kept noticing that I liked, I, I just liked all this music produced by this one guy, Trevor Hunt. And I finally just putting it together. Okay. It's London. Blah, blah, blah. So I went to, well, first of all, I, I'd stolen the big, here's how I got to know Trevor Horn, the real reason. I'd stolen a couple of tracks for Maltese Flamingo mm-hmm. without permission, okay? And Maltese got bigger and bigger and bigger, and I realized that I better get clearances on this stuff because it just keeps getting bigger and bigger, then we're going to have a problem, or I'm going to have a problem. We're stealing music. So I, I flew to London. I called on a Monday called Zatichi Records, and I got this guy, Liam Teeling, Irish guy. And I didn't know this was his very first day on the job because Trevor's wife, Jill Sinclair, just bought Stiff Records, which was a huge, cool label in London. And Liam was the human asset that came with the record company. And so I, I call him on Monday, and I'm like, yeah, I'm an you know, American uh, film producer, yeah, uh, I like to license some of your music for one of my ski movies. And, you know, I'm a big shot and I'm really important. And uh, he's like, okay, well, can you be here Thursday in London? And I'm like, yes, I can. So <laughs> I fly to London and I show up with like a backpack with posters from The Good, The Rabbit Gnarly, Maltese Flamingo, and all these powder magazine stories that were like eight, 10 page spreads. Of, from my movies and they're all like who's your publicist and I'm like, oh I think that's me and anyway so I show up and they're expecting an adult <laughs> and instead they get this five foot four fucking 250 pound kid and I show up with like a backpack and just this kid and they're like what do you want and I'm like what I'd like to use all your music from my next ski movie, but I don't have any money. <laughs> and they're like, and I didn't know this at the time, but they, uh, Jill Sinclair, who was the businesswoman behind that TT, behind Trevor Horn, Trevor's wife, she liked me and thought, I, what the fuck is this? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a chance on this kid. And they said, you can have all of our music for free on one condition and one condition only that the music's fabulous because if it isn't, it won't see the light of day. That was the condition that I was given on that music. You make a fucking great movie. No problem. Movie sucks. Big problem. And then the movie didn't suck and they they loved it. And so that was the beginning of a long relationship. I mean, I'm still friends with Trevor today and feel and all a fabulous, friendship and relationship and that music really changed it because it was Euro pop. This was absolute cutting edge Euro pop. This music, nobody, I mean, they weren't, they, they were not selling music in America. Mm-hmm. Act, propaganda, ZTT records. But after Blizzard, when Blizzard came out, all these unknown bands started selling in America and Trevor and Joe were like, well, and Liam, they're all like, what's wrong with this? We're selling records. We like the kid. And they were all skiers. That was another thing. Awesome. They were all, they would go to Courchevel and Maribel, rich English skiers. And they just loved being a part of it. Well, that's, that's, it's, the whole story is just amazing. 
Mike, all I can remember is you skiing the bumps. I think you had a light blue and yellow club club A. Very right? sexy. Very oh sexy. man, that that was unbelievable. Club that that club segment, a. Club A. Remember club that? A. Well, yeah, we're going back a ways here. I'm dated. Uh, well, even that, remember that Club A, that white, that white, fluffy light, white shirt. Club Windbreaker. A, you know, it looked, it looked great on film. Yeah, no, it, it looked it, great on film, and it showed this. It, that I wish I still had a few of those pieces. Yeah, I have very limited. I actually have one. Did I? Did I send you? I think I sent it to you. Well, it it is. You did. It was. It's huge. I wanted to fit you. It it is totally totally a sexy moment in bump skiing, and it just looked great. Well, give us give us an idea, Mike, because you've traveled the world. What's the difference between the American extreme type experience and the European extreme when it comes to skiing? Well, so yeah, there's quite a difference. What what the Europeans were doing, and what and and where the term came from, extreme skiing, was really ski mountaineering and it was it was skiers like Sylvain Soudan a Swiss skier in the 60s and after him guys like Patrick oh, Melanson uh, and Ensemble yeah. two Chamonix two Chamonix guides um they were they were climbing up these these classic climbing routes and skiing them and nobody had ever skied them before so what they were doing required a, a, a huge a huge amount of 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 schema of, of mountaineering skills and know-how that that none of us had and what we were doing is really skiing something smaller shorter skiing something steep and consequential so yeah so it was it was quite different in terms of when people said extreme skiing it was yeah it it meant different things to different people and cuz i remember coming back after Glenn had spent a year over in Chamonix, he he stayed over there because he was afraid to come back and and, <laughs> and face the music. Like, so he stayed over there and and did a, a ton of ski mountaineering and learned quite a bit. And somebody asked him here if he was an extreme skier, and he said, "I hope to be in maybe ten years." Mm. And I said, "What are you talking about?" And 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 it wasn't till later that I understood that Glenn understood that, that extreme skiing wasn't just about skiing in in France anyways, wasn't just about skiing something steep and consequential. It was, it was about having a whole host of, of mountaineering skills that he was just beginning to learn. Sure. That, that makes all the sense in the world. And I'll tell you what, Glenn has an angel. It's called Kimberly. His wife is a gem. (laughs) So Blizzard is released on oh, October yeah. 6th, 1988 at the Portland Performing Arts Center in Portland, Maine. Greg, do you remember what the reaction was from that showing? Oh yeah, it was well those shows were those were really fun shows because well it was not, it was a beautiful theater for one thing, it was the right size. It was about 400 seats. But it was a you know, it was a theater theater. Was, and I had I had dabbled in <clears throat> acting, so I had acted in, I knew the theater it had a great bar in the lobby. It was just a really great venue, but I used to do two shows, starting with Maltese. Actually, not Maltese, but starting with Good the Red, I started doing shows at the premiere shows. But we do one, the first night was open bar, invite only, and I would spend $10,000 on the party, right? And then the next night, 
it would be packed with paying customers and I'd break even. But it was, so it was a really good venue. It was an annual event. I mean, it was like, it was like throwing a wedding every year. It, it got to be, I mean, I stopped doing it. Because people would be choked because I didn't keep track of the list of people. So if they didn't get an invitation, because I used to send out like invitations, like a wedding, right? Mm. And you get these printed, really cool invitations. And it was just a, it was a big event. And I mean, the reaction was, was good. But I mean, Stu Rempel from Solomon that night, he came up to me after the movie and said, you've gone too far this extreme thing it's never going to work and uh, he doesn't like me telling the story because it's true <laughs> <laughs> you know and I love I, I love Stu Rumpel he's, a, he's a, a dear friend but he said that he goes you've gone too far and he wasn't the only one several other people from the ski industry said you've gone too far and then journalists even afterwards when they started covering people like Mike Lund and uh, not Mike Lund but uh, M- Morton Morton Lund, heavy hitters in the ski industry, writers, openly wrote, where can it go from here? It can't go anywhere further. There's no more extreme than this. And I just kept thinking, boy, you guys are idiots because <laughs> there's no place for it to go but up. Right. And more. And, and it did. And it got more and more. And then there's TGR and Steve Winter and and injuries and fatalities and paralyzations. And for me, it just get, I'm not an extreme. I'm a freaking ballet skier from Maine, right? Right. <laughs> and four months later, that people are telling you you went too far, you land on the Today Show with Stump and Schmidt. I'm, I'm sorry, with Plake and Schmidt landing on the Today Show. How did that call come about? And now you're on the Today Show. This did that say to you this film has throttled? See, there's that word again. This career to another level. Oh yeah, the whole that whole experience was intense because, well, first of all, I'd not seen Glenn because he stayed in France after how we filmed the movie because he had charges in the states. He had he, he missed a court date for for some charges, drug charges, and. When I left him in Chamonix, I gave him all the money I had. I gave him like 500 bucks, like all the money I had. And I said, Glenn, you really need to get on an airplane with this plane ticket that I bought for you and go back and face the music. And he said, screw it. I'm not doing it. I'm going to stay here. And I'm like, wow, okay, that's your prerogative. So, of course, he did that. And then he's got a bench warrant. And then we get the call that they want, NBC want Glenn and Scott on the Today Show and all fine and good, except can't get Glenn in the country. <laughs> so I had to spend, I mean, at the time, it was, I, put, I think I spent $5,000 on a lawyer. Oh, yeah, and Glenn's dad, Jim, he wouldn't help me at all. He's like, fuck that kid. I'm not spending any money on him. And so anyway, I, I spent the five grand for Glenn to get in the country. Coincidentally, uh, Jim became Glenn's agent about four months later. So I had to deal now Glenn's got an agent, the same guy that wouldn't help get him in the country. <laughs> Go um, figure, huh? Yeah. But, uh, but that's okay. And What um, what are the plans moving forward for you, Greg? What, right now? Yeah. What do, what are you doing these days? Well, I'm I'm putting together, I'm doing a residency in Aspen in February at the ISIS Theater. So every Wednesday we're, we're having a whole big event. And I'm going to start out with, Multi Flamingo, because that was Hunter Thompson's favorite movie. Hunter S. Thompson, the writer, the Aspen legend. 
is he loved Maltese flamingo, which is very flattering. And I've heard this from a number of his friends. Aspen. So I'm doing a residency in Aspen. starts with Maltese. I'm doing group, Requiem in the Key of Ski. I'm not sure about the third movie yet. I might do Blizzard 30th or I might do Siberia. And then the final movie is Legend of Oz, which is a really good movie. But so I'm doing a residency in Aspen. And then there's also a feature film in development about freestyle skiing. Hmm. That I'm either going to direct it or I'm going to produce it or we're not even sure what I'm going to do. <laughs> but so that's, that's in the works. That's very exciting. That that's we had Mike Marvin on a recent podcast talking about hot dog, and it's it's funny. Like there are just no good ski movies anymore. I mean, there are ski films, documentaries, and 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 whatnot, but no like hot dog or Better Off Dead or any kind of even ski sequence in a movie like the James Bond. So that's exciting. I'm glad to to see that Hollywood's got maybe a, a foot in the door there. Yeah, well, it's, it's got nothing to do with Hollywood. It's to do with a billionaire. From Aspen, who likes ski movies? It's even better. Nothing to do with Hollywood. <laughs> Mike, what are you doing now? What is your gig in life? Oh, so I'm I'm the the ski category director at Black Diamond. So yeah, really combining my love of of skiing with with ski touring, and it, it's funny because the the trip to Chamonix with Greg really opened my eyes to the to the bigger world of ski mountaineering and and skiing and prior to that i had i was a i was a resort mogul skier i'd never even skied out of bounds before and here we got thrown into this fierce raw terrain with crevasses and seracs and ice fall and it was pretty intimidating and i was drawn to the terrain but also knew i had no business being out there without a guide and and that trip was what led me on the path to becoming a, an american mountain guide association ski ski mountaineering guide and 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 eventually my my job here at black diamond so i i run really the the r d so work with a bunch of super smart engineers developing really cool backcountry products so kind of a dream job oh it's it that's more than a dream job based in salt lake i take it yes yeah oh can't beat it yeah, after he, this last he time. lives in sun valley <laughs> yeah, I, I actually he doesn't have to go to Salt Lake. No, no. <laughs> so, Greg, Greg, you celebrated the 30th anniversary of Blizzard with a a new cut you released. Uh, there are no plans to do it for a 40th, though. I I take it. Well, not at the moment. No. It's still, still a five years, though. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so we, well, and you know what Mike was saying. I know that I think for for me, and it sounds like the same thing for you, Mike, is that we realized what we didn't know. Being Absolutely. Shooting <laughs> we realized what we did not know, and what we did not know was vast. And, Absolutely. Uh, it could have you know, said it better. Yeah, it's what we didn't know, and then for me also with, with Blizzard, like I don't narrate License to Thrill because I was so embarrassed by my narration in Blizzard of Oz, which people are like, well, that's one of the best things in the movie. Well, not for me. For me, I'm a, a young, smart-ass, basically mouthing off about extreme. And these guys are the best. <laughs> I'm doing my whole fucking bullshit narration thing. But, but, but it was, to me, it was completely fake. And that movie got so big so quickly that I 
was embarrassed. I was embarrassed of my narration to the point that I didn't narrate the next movie. And I took the, what Mike was saying earlier about the NFL films. I took it one step further. Like now we're going to do NFL films with no narrator. It's going to just be the athletes. And that's what License to Thrill is. It's just the athletes. I don't narrate that movie. There's, I, I don't say a word. Uh, it's all the athletes talking. And that made it even more powerful. And then I completely screwed up with Dr. Strange Club. I'd fallen in love and was madly in love with this girl. And that was more important. <laughs> Plus we didn't, we had a, we had a, we had no, there was no snow in Europe again for the second year in a row. That was the other thing with license. We got, we, we got <clears throat> snow in North America, but then <clears throat> the next year there really wasn't, there's no snow in Europe and there was limited snow. Movies are like, like wildlife photography, right? You're at the mercy of the weather. Like you can plan all you want. You can, you can plan all you want. But the fact is, if it's a beautiful blue sky day, and Mike can attest to this, we, we had this very proven track record of if you want it to be sunny and bluebird the next day, we stay out all night and we get wasted <laughs> and we wake up hungover and it's going to be clear. <laughs> Ever failed. Murphy's Law is at its best. Hey, I want to thank you both for coming on. Like I said, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I appreciate that you guys put this together. Greg, for coming up with the idea. Mike, you, Scott, and Glenn really are idols when it comes to how you ski and your attitude towards the winter sport business. Oh, thanks very much. It's super fun to super fun to all reminisce and and I actually learned a few things that I didn't know about <laughs> Stump and his motivation and some of the insights. So it's always always a pleasure. Awesome. Well, I'm a very insecure person. I've got a lot of problems. <laughs> <laughs> Join the club. Thank you very much to both of you for joining us on this edition of the Basecamp Podcast. We're going to take a break and be right back. Eric. Greg Stump, Mike Hattrop, Scott Schmidt, Glenn Plake. These guys, these guys are skiing. They are what skiing was all about in the 80s. Yeah, I'm, I'm having flashbacks to my college days and envisioning me and my pals watching ski movies and watching the Blizzard of Oz and, and to be sitting here 30 years later still discussing these same movies really speaks to their longevity, why they connect with people. Blizzard of Oz, we're, we're talking 35 years now. That's not, that's not yesterday. <laughs> that, that, that's a long time ago. For us who remember the 80s like it wasn't that long ago, it doesn't seem it. But 35 years ago, to your average 20-year-old kid, that's like the 50s to us. It just, it, it, it doesn't really connect. Movies like Blizzard of Oz do connect, though, because of the timeliness of it, right? The Chamonix, the, these extreme skiers, the American in Paris or the American in, in, in Europe, you know what I mean? The, all the things that Stump was fearful of really come together and still define it in, into a, a package that works today. There are some ski movies you go back and watch that seem completely terribly dated, there are some that seem dated, but you really want to live in that era again. And Blizzard of Oz is definitely the latter. It's one of those things where you, you wish you could kind of go back 
and relive some of that, that history that you're seeing on the screen? Well, for me, I think when I look at this movie, when they went to Chamonix and they started to ski lines on 205s, 210s, 215s skis, and they skied them in control, and they created new turns that we had never seen before, Schmidt especially. But, you know, when you look at that and you look at today, where we're skiing on 120 underfoot, 110 underfoot, 100 underfoot, these guys were on narrow, long skis. I don't, they were athletes, they were skiers, and they did remarkable things, and they brought it all to us on the screen. Yep, and like... I know Greg said it to me when viral, we were viral before viral was viral that he told me that. So, but I think that's so true that the viral before being viral, the way we passed around these videotapes from ski chalet to ski chalet was truly the precursor to the way that videos are viral now. They, they sure are. And I, Eric, I think the, the coolest thing about this series is that both of the first two podcasts that we've done on movies had two New Englanders in them. Mm -hmm. Okay. We've got one more in this series that's going to bring New England fully into the mix here. And I am so looking forward to the next chat and just make sure everybody, all the listeners, I hope you've enjoyed these two first two. The last one in the series is going to be just vibrant. Please join us. Yes, live or not live from Cape Cod and still Vermont. We will have them on here the next time you join us on the Basecamp podcast. But for now, that's all the time we have for this edition, as fun as it was. So, Mike, thank you very much. Eric, it's, it's getting better every moment. And some of the ideas that are ahead of us are really going to be fun with some of the things happening this winter. Absolutely. Stay tuned. That is uh, it for us. I am Eric Wilbur. This is the New England Ski Journal Basecamp Podcast. We will see you next time. New England Ski Journal's Basecamp is a Siemens Media Podcast. Siemens Media. Inspiring. Informative. Insightful.